Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like what you hear, I really need your support to share this episode and others via email, via WhatsApp, your Facebook or Twitter accounts. Whichever way you do it, personal recommendation is the best possible way of growing my audience and making my voluntary efforts worth yet more. My guest today is David Collier, an arch-Zionist, Israeli citizen. He grew up here and returned to the UK after 19 years living in Israel back in 2006. He speaks Hebrew with his family at home. But asked why he stays in England, he replies simply, for the fight. Jew hate, he says, is a problem here and not particularly in Israel. Labour Labour are putting together the most toxic, the most anti-Semitic, the most extreme list of candidates that I believe has ever been seen uh, filled in at a general election. And there is no way back from this. Not, Not... for 10 years, 15, 20, the, the battle, if, if there is still a battle for the soul of the Labour Party, it's now a generational battle. David researches, researches and researches, and his reports uncovering Jew hate from the highest corridors of power to private groups on Facebook have rocked the news agenda. That Jeremy Corbyn's been so consistently exposed for being present and sometimes involved in acts he doesn't really want to trumpet on the opposition front benches is down to David, and his work is fully independent. He doesn't work for any political group or communal organisation. Independence, which he believes is key to the integrity of that work. He's detailed the Israel-Arab conflict since 1990 and fought delegitimization of the Jewish state since 2000. And he's one of the Algemeiner J100. It's a list of the top 100 Jews worldwide positively influencing Jewish life. And I'm going to bestow upon him what I consider to be the highest tribute by comparing him to the late Alfred Wiener, he of the Wiener Library, who spent much of his life documenting the Nazis' rise to power and predicting their danger to Germany as early as 1925. The delegitimization campaign against Israel and the rise of anti-Semitism are linked, he says. Ergo, anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. While in Israel, he edited and published an English-language tourist and satirical newspaper designed for non-residents, and it was distributed nationally and printed at the offices of a Palestinian newspaper. He closed an advertising deal with the Jericho Casino, a burgeoning example of what's possible if a peace process can be started, only to see the tourist attraction bombed before the first ad could even be printed. That was the shotgun for the second intifada. I met David in my favourite atmospheric Turkish cafe, and you are welcome to join us. It's my pleasure to uh, welcome David Collier to the uh, podcast Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much for coming along. Pleasure to be here. Now, for those of you who haven't seen your blog, check out the About Me section for an illuminating intro to your life's work for the purposes of this podcast, because I can't get the word casino out of my head from from it. (laughs) Oh, the Jericho casino. (laughs) 
it was a join the Oslo process. They just built this huge casino. It was the only one in the region. Gambling's illegal in Israel. So the Palestinians saw it as a great way to advertise tourists, tourism, and the Israelis loved the idea as well. In Judea and Samaria. Absolutely. Right. Um, and the, well, Jericho. Um, so the Israelis loved the idea as well. So it was all going ahead. Then, of course, the second Intifada broke out. And it was one of the first bases that was bombed. Right. So you lived in Israel for a long time, but you're back here now. You are an arch Zionist. You are fighting the fight on behalf of the Anglo-Jewish community and, of course, the state of Israel. What keeps you in the UK? The fight. Seriously, now the fight. Um, I, I left the UK in 1987. When I left the UK, Israel had a pretty good... Uh, was reputation here in the UK if people were taking a year off from university they hopped over to a kibbutz this is the Israel that existed in the UK I came back in 2006 just after the Lebanon war 19 years separate my leaving and my arrival and a massive difference and I noticed it immediately um, it's completely changed here and what's taking place here is a the fight is here the battle is not in Israel Israel's won the battle Okay, Israel's there, it exists, it's powerful, it can defend itself. It's the diaspora, it's the Jews in the world that are under attack. And this is where the battle is, and that's why I'm here. You're backing up a little theory that rolls around my head, which is that the diaspora was more powerful than Israel until the credit crunch. Right, so the credit crunch wiped out a lot of the institutional wealth of the West, Therefore, the Jewish people in the West became poorer at the same time as Israel's handling of the credit crunch actually was mighty because Israel never raised any resources it can't afford to. And suddenly the population moved, the, the scale of weight became uh, more Israeli Jewish than diaspora Jewish. Do you think that was the tipping point? The fact that you're talking about the fight being here rather than in Israel actually began with that major financial disaster. Firstly, I'm the pessimist when it comes to the diaspora. I, absolute pessimist. I tend to think it's it's doomed. Seriously, as as a uh, as we understand the diaspora, I'd be very surprised if it was still around in two generations. In smaller number, pockets of Orthodox, because the Orthodox will still be Orthodox. They're still having their children and so on. But you you can't assimilate at the rate you're assimilating. If you if you are a community and you are not replicating yourself, you'll disappear. And the Jewish community in England and certainly in the States is not reproducing itself. Each generation is half or, or, or 40% of the generation before. That's an inevitable situation. The other thing you could say is this, look, what was the diaspora? The, the diaspora was the ship upon which the Jewish people sailed for 2,000 years whilst they did not have a state. Since 1948, they have a state what then the diaspora? What's our purpose as a diaspora? We're no longer that community holding the Jewish people alive. And over, which is part of what you're talking about, over the last 70 years, there has been a gradual shift. What exactly that tipping point is, is a, but a gradual shift of power. But it's such a, an interesting hemisphere, the Jewish idea, because of course, to be part of the Jewish nation in London or Paris, or Johannesburg, or anywhere else I can think of with a prominent community, Moscow, is actually based upon ideas and praying and the, the calendar of festivals, whereas in Israel it's a real project. So 
there really is always going to be a purpose to the diaspora in terms of religion and identity, which will never be quite the same if you are an Israeli. For sure. You can be um, Jewish nationally, like from national, nationalist. You can be religiously. You can be any combination of a religious nationalist mix you want across the spectrum. But if you are neither Jewish nationally or ni neither Jewish religiously, there's nothing holding you together. There's nothing holding your identity beyond some naive idea you're never going to be able to pass on to your children. Now, David, you write extensive, meaty reports which make headlines and hopefully, and I can say on a number of occasions, they have averted the news agenda. I'm thinking about Jeremy Corbyn's membership of Palestine Live, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which is an hourly challenge for people like you, for, for Ewan Phillips, for uh, Luke Akehurst, and Denny Taylor, many, many other people, Rachel Riley. Um, where did your extensive penchant for research begin? Because no one researches like you. <laughs> I don't, I, I've spent several years undercover as an anti-Zionist activist. I put on the kafir. The, 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 a hat with a big BDS badge on it, Free Palestine. I went what did you look like? Terrible. <laughs> there's, there's actually a picture of me in a, like a kafir, but I've had to put on my glasses so you can recognise me. Otherwise, people would just think it was a... You know. but how did he pull that off? <laughs> well, I wasn't... This was all before I was publicly known. Right. It was really the Corbyn issue. that right. I, I was left knowing what was going on. Um, and being in a position, well, if I maintain my secret identity now, I can't tell what needs to be told. So basically I had to come, come out, if you like. Um, but the research has been there for years. And my, the difference between me, me and most is I don't come from the community here. 19 years in Israel. So I've come in as a Zionist Israeli back into the UK. And I've approached it from an anti-Zionist perspective. I know the way they think. I know who they are, I know where they meet, I understand their arguments, I've read their books, I've listened to them talk. So that's my area of expertise and, and my role, I saw it, was explaining what I knew and what I saw and what I understood to people who perhaps didn't understand it properly. In preparing for this interview, I did a, a 10 minute David Collier exercise I went into Jenny Tong's Facebook page, <laughs> and rather comically, her friends were Stephen Sizer, Roger Waters, you know, all the kind of people that you'd expect to be friends. Oh, look, please. So then I popped in and had a look at Roger Waters, and he was talking about playing as Pink Floyd at Hayarikon Park, and he made this massive assumption that all the people, and by the way, he said that the Israelis were respectful and were real fans of Pink Floyd. Of course they would be. They like Western music. They are Western. But then he said something like, oh, but there were 60,000 Jewish Israelis there and it's a real apartheid. Just, How does he know? I mean, Tel Aviv is multi-ethnic and there's a big community of everybody there. There weren't 60,000 Jewish Israelis there, you idiot. You know, there might have been 40,000. <laughs> There would have been assimilated Arab Christians there from Jaffa, you know, who like Pink Floyd. And then, and then I went to do another thing where it started. I don't think it was him, but it was someone else about, you know, real socialists need to challenge this apartheid. And you think, oh, jeez, you know. 
it's it's just a perversion of reality. It's just um, it's like a thin slicing of what's going on. It's it's not the full spectrum. No, it's not, and it, it's anti-Semitic at its core. Yeah. It basically expects or, or, or describes Jewish Israelis as white European, big-nosed, uh, the classic caricature of, of the anti-Semitic um, Jew, if you like. If, if you're walking through Israel's streets, you can't tell who's Jewish and who's not. It's, it's absurd. In fact, if I was to put Roger Waters on a street in Israel and ask him to pick out who was Jewish and who's not, I actually believe most of the people he would say were Arab were actually Mizrahi Jews from Morocco or Iraq yeah, or Syria yeah. or, or Lebanon. I mean, you just mentioned your wife, my wife as well. My wife's father was expelled from Egypt in 1956. It's from Egypt. Her mother was from Morocco. So are you going to tell me she looks like a Polish Jew? It's crazy. You're listening to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like my regular podcasts, please think about making a donation. My podcasts are free, and I want to keep them free, and so donations really help me keep them that way. Head over to my donations page at www.patreon.com slash johnnygould. So your background is many, many years in Israel. Kibbutz life, oh, that looks fun. And, and I know people who are 50 who Love went it. to kibbutz and now they're sort of getting the ear of Corbyn and the Palestinian okay. movement. That's the evolution of what you're talking about. So where does the research background come? Okay, are you an accountant? Uh, that's, not, that's not a stereotype, by the way. No, I... I um, oh, actually, yes. <laughs> I... Um, um, I didn't really study until I came back from Israel. Right. I went back to university right. after I got back from Israel. I went to Birkbeck, which right. that allows you to work and study at the same time. Um, and I took, firstly, I took an IT and management uh, BA, but then I went on to do an ethics, MSc, Masters in Ethics. So the research is from here. I've got a Masters. Um, and it, it was, I suppose it stems from that. Anyone who follows you on Twitter, and I say now, if you don't follow at Mishtal, you should now. We'll see a constant stream of consciousness about Israel, Zionism, Jewish history, survival, and instantaneous retweets and likes. You know, the minute you tweet something, you know, there's 27 likes and 12 retweets after a minute and a half. They're very thoughtful, David. Do you store them up and send them, or do you tweet as you go along? I mean, there's a lot of prep goes into these tweets, isn't there? I, I write when I sleep. Right. And then I, I have this problem. I have to go to sleep to allow it to cook properly in my head. And I wake. So there is that element of it where I've gone to bed thinking about something and I've woken up with a tweet. <laughs> um, look, the, 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 the threads, the, one, the multi-threads, obviously take a long time. But it, it, in general, um, the smaller ones are single tweets. No, it's, it's off-the-cuff stuff. Yeah. To dispel the conspiracy myths here and now, David, it's important to underscore that you are funded by yourself and donations only. Yeah, I'm, I'm held aloft by um, myself, by my wife, who for years has been the central, since I've been doing this really, has been the central earner in the family, and by very uh, kind 
people from within the private community mm. in small small amounts of donations. I, I am not aligned to any even communal organisation like a legitimate one. It's not like I have funding from uh, the JLC or somebody that would be perfectly legitimate for me to have. I don't even have that. As for the idea that uh, you know the Mossad or Rothschild or I mean MI6 has been the recent one. Absolute nonsense. The very idea that um, you're independent actually really gives extra credence to your work. It's like a modern-day Wiener library, isn't it? I mean, I'm being serious. You know, Wiener, the guy who set up the library, wasn't intending to have a museum there. It was He wanted to record everything the Nazis ever said. And because it was a chronicle of quotes, it was used at Nuremberg. You know, it was an independent piece of work. And I think that adds real gravitas and legitimacy to what you do you're not funded by a big organization well i think it's firstly i've always considered it very very important i mean my i couldn't do what i do if i was funded i mean firstly the most of the jewish organization in the uk are politically very weak their their their, their support of israel is is semi-nonsense board of deputies yeah but Partially, yeah, I'd, I'd include them. Firstly, when I started this, I didn't even know who they were. I remember I was an Israeli who came here, so I, I didn't have any idea of the way that the bodies worked here, who they were. Um, they have a diaspora mentality, and I don't have a diaspora mentality. So I, if I was receiving funding from one of them, they would have cut it off long ago. Um, the other side of it, of course, is, is when you're dealing with... I, I'm not here to s- support Israel. I'm not here to say, Israel is wonderful and brilliant. It doesn't matter. The Jews have a right to self-determination. They have a right to their state, and that is the starting point, and that is what I fight for. You go on to me about what Israel's... I don't care. You know, it is their right to be the nation that they want to be on the ship that they're sailing within the hostile environment that they are and if you don't take that into account then you're being foolish but uh, for me I've got nobody to accept funding from now I interviewed Tuvia Tenenbaum earlier in the Jewish state he is hilarious I had to stifle laughter while he was talking to me because I wanted to get the best quotes that I could possibly get from this guy and he uncovered as you know a deep hatred for Jews here in Britain now, you're at the coalface every hour of every day and in your sleep, as you've just confirmed. Is he right? Has social media merely unlocked kind of what people were thinking before Facebook? Yes, no, firstly, Tuvia is, is, is so funny. I've had him around for dinner. He's an excellent dinner guest. Yeah. <laughs> He's a person who keeps everybody there laughing. Yeah, He's yeah, very yeah. funny. And yeah. the anecdotes he has, endless. Anyway, yes and no. I, I agree with him in that social media has enabled or unlocked it. However, I also think social media is responsible for creating, making it stronger. It's not just a question of unlocking the door. Social media is playing an active role in creating anti-Semites. So it's, it's yes, I agree with him, but I think it's, it's worse than that. But Ian Austin tells me that the decent people of Dudley know something's wrong with the Labour Party. They might not know the ins and outs of anti-Semitism and all the history. I'm, I'm literally quoting him. But they know something is wrong. And I know those people as well. I'm from that part of the world. Is Ian right as well? No. I, I, yeah. 
I don't think people care generally. I, I, I think that the they don't like racists. They don't like fascists in this country. No, agree. But first, we didn't necessarily learn the lesson that some European nations learnt about fascism because we ended up fighting it. And, and, and the rejection of the fascists that existed here in the 1930s was in part a rejection of Nazi Germany as much as it was that they became the enemy because of what was taking place outside, not because of what was taking place inside. We had our fascists. Um, what the problem with Jeremy Corbyn, we could deal with Jeremy Corbyn if we could really nail down the terrorist links the IRA links, if we can highlight extremist elements that the British people won't accept. The anti-Semitism issue is just a fraction of that. People will not reject someone here because it's an anti-Semite. And, and the IRA is a slightly clearer fight for the British people. Louise Elman, Luciana Berger, Ian Austin, Ivan Lewis, John Mann, good men and women, cleared out of, resigned from Labour so they can assemble an unlikely horde of general election and regional mayoral candidates, among them Holocaust deniers, Rothschild conspiracy theorists, Islamist supporters, mural admirers. Some of these people will be elected, you know. Political discourse after the next general election will change even if Labour are still in opposition. Some of the, some of the quotes that will come out of Parliament will be really repulsive. Yes, Labour are putting together the most toxic the most anti-Semitic, the most extreme list of candidates that I believe has ever been seen uh, filled in at a general election. And there is no way back from this. Not, not for 10 years, 15, 20. The, the battle, if, if the, there is still a battle for the soul of the Labour Party, it's now a generational battle. That's the thing. Sound bites coming out of a televised Houses of Parliament in, for example... A heating up of the conflict between, I don't know, Israel and Turkey in four years' time, Israel and Iran, Saudi and Iran with Israel in the middle, and Rebecca Long Bailey says something, or, you know, Salma Yakub, anyone, they're going to change the news agenda for the worse. It's already changed. It's already, we're on a slope. We really are. And, and, um, what you're describing now is part and parcel of the changes that are taking place. Corbyn is a symptom of what is taking place. He, he got there because the problem already exists. His, his, the alliance behind him is something that the UK did not have 20 or 30 years ago. We remember the Marxists of the 1970s. We remember them. But their power base was almost exclusively white, working class. It, was, it wasn't strong enough to push itself into the mainstream. Now there are alliances taking place. Obviously with the um, Islamist, political Islamic community. Um, and we call it the Red-Green Alliance. It surfaced during the, obviously the early 2000s in response to the Iraq war it became a political power, a political unit in the United Kingdom, this is what we're facing, it's far stronger than the Marxist elements we fought in the 1970s Now you've just finished your latest project which is analysing a GCSE school textbook published by Pearson and you confidently claim it's anti-Semitic in nature. In your words, it's manipulative and categorically demonizes Zionism and the Jewish state with factual errors, historical nonsense, whitewashing Arab intent, and using anti-Semitic sources, including Wiki. 
Well, firstly, Wiki, it, half of the book has been lifted from Wikipedia. Right. That is a, a school right. textbook that I believe has been effectively pushed together using uh, pieces from Wikipedia. But no, I, I think the electronic intifada has been used as a source. It's not in the report that I published. There's a second uh, part that has gone to the publishers, um, listing an additional 65 problems with the book. I mean, think about it. This is an, a textbook, and we're dealing with over 100 problems. And it, it's not just the distortion or, or the whitewashing of the Arab uh, intent. It's the way that it's been sourced. It's the way it's worded, the manipulation to create a world vision. If you are talking about the Israel-Arab conflict and you wish to get it across properly, you have to describe the toxic environment that existed before the Zionists arrived. What did the Zionists arrive into? It was racist. It was anti-Semitic. It was clan-based. It, it, it was a, a semi-functioning society, if you like. And unless you describe that, if you place the Zionists on top of a wonderful Palestinian state where the Palestinian flag is waved by all these free-loving people, be the Muslims, Christians, you're lying and you'll never arrive at the truth. They need a bit of Lynn Julius's book uprooted, don't they? Yeah, I mean, Lynn obviously, I mean, Lynn, Lynn's book's fantastic. It obviously deals with the, 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 the relationship between the Arabs and, and, um, and the Jews. But it, it's more than that. You, you, you mentioned earlier about the way that white Europeans, you know, Jews are uh, looked or seen. I, you go to Israel and you walk through the Arab towns and you will see many people inside those Arab towns who look like white Europeans. Why? Because when the Ottoman Empire collapsed during the 19th century, Muslims who were living in Baltic states or in left and came towards the empire. So we have Bosnian Muslims. These are not Palestinians who have been living in in the region for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but they're migrants who came pretty much along with the Zionists. Uh, not all of them, but there's obviously a quantity that did. Now, one of your most important reports concerned a Facebook page called Palestine Live, which was effectively a crude tool of Jew hate set up by Eliane Green, yep. known personally to Jeremy Corbyn, sends him little, sends him little kisses, little X after little messages. How, how lovely. Who himself had been rather active on the site. And I think this is possibly, correct me if I'm wrong, probably the, the, the greatest gift to the mainstream media agenda against Corbyn that you've provided, the sort of the, the Palestine Live revelations? Yeah, well, Palestine Live was important because, A, it was secret, mm -hmm. um, which meant nobody knew it existed. Mm -hmm. Even if you searched for the group, knowing it existed, you wouldn't have found it. Mm -hmm. The level and the quality of the people inside the group, this wasn't a bunch of, like, just activists from the street. These were people who run the anti-Israel organisations. There were MPs and, and members of the House of Lords. I mean, this was a very serious group. And the ability that I had, because it was a contained unit, I was able to quantify the level of anti-Semitism within. How many anti-Semites were active within that group? And when you realise that three out of every four posts made in that group came from the hand of someone who shares hardcore anti-Semitic material, you start asking, how can anyone be inside and feel comfortable and to find people like Corbyn in there were, were, was horrific and yes it, it was um, I have another report coming out next week by the way it's about amnesty um, 
uh, hinting about this one. Mm-hmm. It's a big report, yes. and it looks at Amnesty's uh, activity against Israel and, and beyond. Uh, Amnesty are hostile to India. They're hostile to Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there, there's a, there's a political ideology driving Amnesty that's quite scary, and that I'm hoping that will also have an impact. Here's another advert to say follow at Mishtel for the latest on that. Now I've seen you in videos advocating alongside that other great advocate of um, of Zionism, uh, Joseph Cohen, um, and I saw you outside. I think it was Olympia in London, Palestine Expo, talking to a sort of bohemian-looking guy, both of you on to him, um, very placidly arguing the case. How do you keep your counsel? I mean, he was getting furious with you, but you, kind of both of you, you know, because, you know, you and Joseph have this sort of particular way. Um, Joseph's amazing, guy. Okay, firstly, this is more Joseph's field than mine. This right. is what Joseph does. Yes. Um, I was along with you Joseph. You were there. I was there. and uh, Crouching I'm, down, looking terribly friendly. I, <laughs> I'm uh, well known, I'd say, amongst that crowd. Yeah. And, and when he found out who I was, he, he reacted. <laughs> uh, I think he said he wanted to gouge out his eyes because he was looking at... Um, <laughs> well, at least not yours. <laughs> so that's yeah, I said, go, go ahead. <laughs> Look, arguing with haters, and, and we do this too often on social media as well, arguing with real haters is a pointless exercise, absolutely pointless. There is no point sitting across someone who is an anti-Semite and trying to persuade him not to be an anti-Semite. The, the question is one of value. How can I take this situation and turn it around to my advantage? Me ranting and raving mm-hmm. and screaming and yeah. shouting at him as an anti-Semite isn't going to do that. In fact, that has no value outside of video. If I can capture this on video and show it to other people, so it's, it's very important, keep your call uh, and understand that what you're doing is you're trying to show people who aren't there what this is all about. I've seen Joseph on, at Hyde Park Corner, standing upright, talking face to face with someone, defensively, but brilliantly, under an extreme amount of pressure. I mean, uh, potential mortal danger, actually. You know, it's very... People surrounding him, and uh, it's, uh, it's extremely difficult. Joseph is, is standalone. He is one of a kind yeah. in, in that Joseph has read Islamic texts. He understands the Koran. He, he, he talks about the relationship between Koran and the Jews, and he's able to talk to Muslims in their own language, if you like, yeah, yeah. Um, which nobody else can do. So, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Now, the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into Labour anti-Semitism really can't come quick enough. When and how will it strike? And what's taking it so long? The welter of evidence must be absolutely devastating, and it actually can't work quick enough. I mean, there must be volumes and volumes increasing and increasing every single week. I am um, hopeful, but I'm not as... I'm not as confident as others are on the EHRC. Not because I don't think it'll arrive at the right conclusion, um, but we have we, we we're in a, a world where people need to create balance. Everything has to be balanced, and it, this is doing us so. This postmodern world is doing us so much damage. And if the EHRC aligns to that paradigm, we're in trouble. 
So I wouldn't be sitting there saying, yeah, it's going to be great. If it wants to, if it tells the truth, if it does it uncritically, if it does it without thinking, if it does it in the way it should, we've got something to look forward to. But if it starts looking at what it's saying and saying, no, we can't say that because this will offend someone, or we can't say that because this is... then we'll end up with another whitewash. Because then you'll have to have on the BBC something like uh, the Labour Party office, uh, you know, deny the allegations stringently and of course there'll be a few million people who accept and believe that yeah but beyond that even within the paradigm that it's written I mean there there is an alliance taking place between hard left Marxists and political Islamists there is an alliance taking place and if you don't name it if you don't point it out then you're not telling the truth and is a government commission coming out like or an EHRC it's independent EHRC are they capable because it's part of the problem it is part of the problem we're we're seeing specifically in areas of large Muslim communities we're seeing um, harder or more problematic candidates being put forward so there's a relationship there that you can't deny now that's part of the institutional problem If you're going to talk about the institutional problem of Labour, you have to mention it, but will they? Will they have the courage to stand up and say the truth? David, my favourite David Collier research refers to Hansard. I think this is my number... This is your Christmas number one. You searched over 200 years of Hansard, which made me laugh for a starter, and then you found that Yasser Arafat was mentioned 849 times, almost as much as Nelson Mandela, and three times more than Ronnie Reagan. How dare they? He's also mentioned more than Netanyahu, who's been Prime Minister of Israel, well, since King David, I think, certainly for 13 years. That's outrageous. In the 31 years since it was founded, Hamas has received nearly 2,500 mentions, which is more than both Bangor and Port Talbot in Wales put together (laughs) in 70 years. Are the people of Port Talbot and Bangor who vote for parliamentary representation happy about the fact that Parliament is focused more on Hamas than their own well-being? I mean, that made me titter, but actually it's pretty serious. Yeah, firstly, that's the side of research that I love. Because when when you're given numbers like that, you can look for these kind of quirks. Um, So I did spend some time having fun with myself, playing with who's been mentioned more. Look, the, the, the situation um, with the way that the Parliament is obsessing over this tiny spat, it really is a tiny spat. People talk about how important it is, but yeah, but only because you're talking about it all the time. One leads to the other. It shouldn't really be as important as that. It's meaningless. It's a tiny spat with a low casualty count in a tiny region of the world. Whereas just over a few hundred miles away, hundreds of thousands are being slaughtered. Yet Parliament is obsessing over it. Politicians obsess over it. And and, uh, as you will see, Amnesty obsess over it. And using Amnesty as a good example, it's not not free. The people of Port Talbot are ignored when they talk about Hamas. When Amnesty obsess over Israel, who are they ignoring? What resources are they putting forward to Israel, on Israel that they should actually... This is Amnesty International. Shouldn't they actually be looking at places where people are really in dire need of Amnesty's assistance? Every time somebody puts Palestine onto the, the paper to write something about Palestine, somebody's dying something. 
So going back to one of the themes earlier on in the interview about you think that uh, the Jewish people in Britain, in France, in South Africa, in the United States, Australia, have, Brazil, have two generations left? Is that in terms of critical mass, expulsion, or, or worse? You know, how, how will this manifest itself, David? Tale of the defining cloths. Um, how long have I got? Jabotinsky. <laughs> um, when Jabotinsky wrote The Iron Wall, he also wrote a second essay called The Ethics of the Iron Wall, which is actually supporting the ethical position of the Iron Wall. And it's fascinating. And one of the stories he tells is a story of the divided cloth. Two guys walking along find a cloth, right? They start arguing over who finds it. Sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Tear it in half. We're both happy. So one says, um, I want it all. And the other says, no, 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 oh, I only want, you know, let's be nice, let's do this properly, you have half, I'll have half. The other one sticks his ground and says, no, I want it all. So it gets this massive row, and nobody changes positions. One's being magnanimous, he's saying, no, you take half of it, we can be friends. And the other one's saying, I want it all. They go before a judge, and the judge says this, there is an agreement over half of the cloth. Half of the cloth begins goes to the person who would not negotiate. We're now left with half a cloth. Let's start negotiating. That attitude of giving something up for nothing is going to destroy the diaspora unless it begins to stick its ground. Because, as I said earlier, we, you, you can be a Jew if you're religiously or nationally. You have these choices. You can make any mix of it that you want. You can support Zionism, uh, Jewish identity, we deserve a nation way, or you can support it from a I'm a religious Jew way. Either way, or you can mix them, religious nationalism, however you want to do it. But if you refuse to support it from a national perspective, if you say, no, actually, uh, and start umming and eyeing, if you don't, and a lot of Jews don't today, do anything outside of Yom Kippur or Erev Seid or that, there's nothing holding you together anymore as a Jewish family. What are you going to give your kids? Some kind of abstract notion, which is tikkun olam. This is it, tikkun olam. And what you're left with is you are left with Jews going to Parliament Square and saying Kaddish for Hamas terrorists. That's what you end up with because you keep dividing the cloth. Unless you have a red line, where's your red line? Because that's what people need to ask themselves. What is their red line? Unless you have one and you stick to it and you don't move to it, eventually you'll dissipate. David, you saved the very best till last. Thank you very, very much for joining me today. No problem at all, my pleasure.